Welcome to the Purpose and Principles podcast. My name is Max Brown, and my guest today is Dr. Hal Gregardson. And, and Hal is a senior lecturer in leadership and innovation at MIT's Sloan School of Management, and he's the former executive director of the MIT Leadership Center and a renowned expert on leadership, innovation, and creative culture, dedicating his career to helping companies stay ahead in an accelerating world by teaching them how to implement a culture of inquiry and transform themselves into innovative powerhouses. And and in that, you've written some amazing books, and we're going to talk a lot about those today, but one of the the ones that just got a lot of attention is this three-step methodology around a question burst, which he's then captured in a, in a book called Questions Are the Answer, a breakthrough approach to your most vexing problems at work and in life. And I've read it with great interest. He's also co-authored with a lot of people, worked with incredible companies around the world, um, and, and lectured in, in, in schools and organizations around the world as well. Recognized as a top 30 global guru, he's been in the New York Times and Fortune and Forbes and Financial Times and Fast Company and all that good stuff. And, and Hal, I'm just grateful that you would join me and that you could even find the time to have a conversation today. Well, Max, I'm delighted to ha- get that really, um, that exceptional eulogy here before I died. <laughs> <laughs> well, we all deserve one before we die, don't we? There we, we go. all Thank deserve you. one. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. It's, it, it is a delight to be with you. <clears throat> well, I am grateful. You know, I, as a student of questions, when I read your book, I thought, oh, wow, someone that someone that just wants to ask good questions just as near and dear to my heart. And so being able to connect with you today is just such a, I'm so happy about that, frankly, because Hmm. I love, I love inquiry and I love the quality of a good question. And I really want to just ask you that today. Why, why questions and where did that all begin for you? Hmm. Questions that matter, Max, are living questions. And at the very core, um, inquiry for me started really quite young. And I didn't honestly not intend to start out at this place, but Mm -hmm. I think it's appropriate given our situation. Mm -hmm. My father was a phenomenal musician at the core. That was was his uh, um, avocation. His vocation was welding and pile driving and auto mechanicing and those sorts of things. and he had gifts in so many different ways. He was a tremendous problem solver and could just, if, if he were fixing a car, if he didn't have the part, he'd go out in the shop and he'd make the part. Mm. He could make the tool to put the part on the car. And so he was just, he was masterful at those sorts of challenges of a mm. mechanical nature. But for a variety of reasons, um, he had his challenge was really uh, more on the social side absolutely fearful of doing anything in public, speaking in public, you know, that kind of context, Mm -hmm. very awkward and uncomfortable. Um, And in our home, for whatever, you know, I I know now better than I did when I was young, but for whatever reason, um, he was the center of our home. And in today's world, we'd call it emotional abuse. It's like Mm -hmm. everything revolved around him from the TV controller to you name it. And sometimes it was more than just emotional control. It was physical control. And sometimes it was pretty physical impact. But on the scale of physical impact, relatively minor compared to what some people deal with. So Mm -hmm. 
That context is, here's this little kid growing up trying to figure out, how do I make sense of this world around me mm-hmm. that is unpredictable and dangerous inside of this trailer home that I grew up in? Mm-hmm. So we had a, about a 40-foot by 8-foot wide trailer, and we had, I had two siblings, my mom and dad. Arguably, four of the five of us had ADHD. Mm-hmm. So it was a very intense place. And so as a little kid, you're trying to figure out how do I make this safe right here and now in this moment? And and as a little kid, you're asking this question all the time. How can I be nice to this dangerous adult person in my life? And what can I do to make this person happy? Which makes ent- incredibly perfect sense when you're four years old. Hmm. I mean, it, it is a very um, age-level appropriate question to be asking yourself. And then when I got older in a teenagehood and I would think I was in trouble or something, I then realized that if I asked the right question, Mm -hmm. I could sometimes avoid a more severe impact in a situation. Mm -hmm. And so I was actually at a fairly young age trying to use questions as a protective mechanism of myself and sometimes others within our family. Now, that was at a largely unconscious level, all of that stuff I just described to you. It was just growing up. Mm-hmm. And then when I went on to graduate school, well, when I went, when I, when I it was the very end of my undergraduate degree, I took a class by a guy named Joe Bentley in leadership and I absolutely loved it. But Joe was like this masterful, inquisitive person mm-hmm. who sparked this interest into inquiry. And then I went off and did a master's degree in organizational change and bumped into this man named Bonner Ritchie, who literally changed my life because of all people I've ever known, he knows how to probe people deeply hmm. because his purpose, his reason for being on planet Earth, if you were to frame it from his perspective, yeah. is how can I teach people to protect themselves from organizations? Whoa. Hmm. Any organization, hmm. you know. You name it, business, government, church, mm-hmm. how can you teach people to protect themselves? And part of what he was doing was teaching us to think for ourselves at the very core, thinking is asking. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we, we get no novel new thought or insight without a question that we've never asked before. Boy, isn't that true? And I find that today... And I wasn't even going to go here, but I, I, you know, your your story just it provokes a lot for me. Um, but have we lost the art of just civil conversation to the point where we have become so, so in our own worlds within social media, we can we can limit out everything that does not fit our mindset into our world today. We can consume news that only confirms our bias. We can consume books that only reinforce what we believe, and we don't ask a lot of in- we don't have a lot of inquiry anymore because it's almost like if we do have inquiry, number one, our our own position is threatened, or that we somehow are seemed seemingly compromising because we just had a dialogue with someone who might have a different opinion, and we're not allowed to do that anymore. Mm-hmm. Um. <laughs> mm-hmm. My, I, I'm laughing. That's a nervous laughter. That's what I learned to do also when I was a kid. It's like a nervous laughter. But um, the response on that mm. for me, Max, is 
we're we're in this new country of coronavirus right now. Mm-hmm. I've lived in, let's see, England, France, Finland, Abu Dhabi, and the Emirates in America. So five different countries in my life. And um, you go through this cross-cultural adjustment when you're going into a new country. Yeah. And initially, it's this big honeymoon thing. And then the reality starts to set in. And you hit what they call culture shock, which mm-hmm. basically is you don't have any clue what you're doing mm-hmm. and why. Mm-hmm. And you don't have any clue what to do better to get out of this mess that you put yourself in in this new country. Mm-hmm. And then you have a decision about do I stay or do I go? Do I quit, you know, or do I stay and figure out a way? And if mm-hmm. you stay and figure out a way, then it's how do I adjust and fit into this new world? Mm-hmm. And some people cocoon themselves into that new world. Mm-hmm. So one CEO that I interviewed years ago, he actually was sent by his company He chose to go to England from America to get his new international experience check on his, you know, leadership development card. Right. And then he cocooned himself in a gated compound in outside of London with food flown in from America that he could have peanut butter and Cheerios. You know, it's just like he lived America within that context. So even though he adjusted to England, he never learned the English way. Mm-hmm. But if we take the opposite, which is get out of that cocoon, get into the world, be dead wrong in a hundred different ways, be very uncomfortable about it in an equally hundred different ways, don't run from it, and instead be reflectively quiet about what's really going on here and what do I need to change in yes. me in order to respond well in the situation – then you can get through that adjustment curve. You can get out of the culture shock and get into a better place. Now, you're probably thinking, and the listeners probably thinking, what in the crap does that have to do with your question, Max? But here's where I'm going with it. We're now living as a context to these very dysfunctional conversations. We're living in this new country of coronavirus. Mm-hmm. It's a foreign country. For some of us, we've never worked from home. For others, they have, and now we are all isolated. And it's not only that we we may have a stream of video and news feeds and emails and friends through Facebook and Instagram, et cetera, coming into our isolated physical space now, but we are physically isolated. And so whatever difficulties we had prior to the COVID-19 pandemic Mm -hmm. around engaging in functional conversations have only been exacerbated. They have been ratcheted up to the next level and then some. And so then you've got this situation where, you know, I'll just keep going on it, which is basically you got a situation where, okay, we're, we're now physically living in isolation. And many of us have these historical patterns of information isolation. And then in the middle of all that, we're dealing with so many new and different things. So if you would have asked me six years ago, would mm-hmm. I be spending my energy day each day trying to think to myself, how do I wash my hands? Mm-hmm. How do I not touch my face? How do I clean up packages coming through the door? Mm-hmm. Um, do I wear a face mask or not? How will I get my food if I get my food today? How am I going to get my teeth clean and taken care? And, you know, the list goes on. Right. These are questions that we were never asking, and now we're just flooded with Mm -hmm. all this newness. Yes. And when we're flooded with that newness, we feel vulnerable Mm -hmm. and fearful 
and anxious. And then we get flooded with often negative emotion because of the situation. Yes. And now I'm in a conversation with my work team. Mm -hmm. Or now I'm in a conversation with somebody on Facebook. Mm -hmm. And something just sparks off. And I fly off the handle with an intense, inappropriate response for the situation. Mm Mm-hmm which makes those dysfunctional conversations more dysfunctional than they've ever been on planet earth. Yes. And I think you just captured it perfectly. I mean, I'm boy, I am my, my, my head is spinning. I, I, I lived in China for five years. I lived in Taiwan mm-hmm. for two years. And so Asia for seven traveled the world many, many times. And, and so I understand exactly what you're saying. And I met a lot of those folks who in Shanghai, particularly, had never gone anywhere to integrate and only knew McDonald's. And and so the first time we took them like out on the streets to actually enjoy Chinese food on the street, they were like, whoa, like this is a whole new world. And they had been there for a couple years. Wow. And it was really interesting. And so then we said, let's go to the next level. And we took them out on boats where we would go up and down the canals to city to city, sleeping on yeah. boats. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and just going out and riding our bikes and hanging out with people out in the in the fields, and we just really learned to listen and to engage exactly. and to yeah. love and to hear. You know, I I often talk about that I'm a better traveler uh, when when we did travel, and I'm going to travel again soon. Hopefully, we will all be traveling again. You know, soon. In, in a safe way, of course, but I, I mean, I just hope that there's some things we can do. But I always found that I'm a better traveler when I pause long enough to look at other passengers in the eye and realize that we're all trying to get somewhere today and we all matter. We all, we all, we all care about each other is what I mean. You know, that, mm-hmm. that when I care about the people around me, I'm more thoughtful about the fact that, hey, she might need some help, that, 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 that older lady there might need some help getting her bag up into the overhead. Why can't I be a part of that? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and so I travel better. I travel better when I'm a more conscious person about the people around me. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's where, you know, I, I was, um, when I was 13, no, mm-hmm. no, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. It would have been, um, get the math right here. 15, 15. So I'm 15 years old, and I break my leg skiing on New Year's Day. Yeah. Uh, no, on Christmas Day. And my parents give pick me up a used 35-millimeter camera. I fall totally in love with it. Mm-hmm. So then I take hundreds and then thousands of photos. I save my money. I work at fast food restaurants. I save more money. I finally buy a medium-format professional camera, the cheapest one I could possibly find. And I set up my Hal Gregerson wedding and portrait photographer shop. And that's what I did through college to pay my way. But... When what I learned as a photographer is a question that's super powerful, whether we're in isolation or in another part of the world, which is what's surprising, what's unexpected here and now. Yeah. And if, and I intentionally added here and now, added here and now into that, Mm -hmm. because if, if I don't add the here and now, I'm someplace else instead of on that bus looking at the person across from me trying to figure out what's surprising here and now. Yes. And then what's really interesting is to ask, you know, 
it's like, where am I here? I'm here. Yeah. I'm here and now. What am I feeling, which is tapping into that feeling part? What is that other person feeling across the road, across the bench or wherever they are? Yeah. And, and in a coaching setting, it's like, do you want to talk about it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But even in, an, in a bus setting, the conversation may not be verbal. It might be helping that person who looks really bummed out getting that awful piece of luggage yeah. up into the bin or whatever it is. That's right. That's exactly right. And so, and, and so, you know, one of the profound things that, again, we talk about these cross-cultural adjustment curves, but we've also got Kubler-Ross's grief curve. And the adjustment curve is all about our place in an organization. It's like, how do we adjust and fit in here? Mm-hmm. A learning curve is all about performance. Mm-hmm. It's about whether we're doing things right or not. Mm-hmm. But the Kubler-Ross curve is about emotion. Mm-hmm. And they're all basically laid over each other. And, and to get through that emotional cycle of loss, which we're all dealing with right now, mm-hmm. In order to get away from, you know, denial, then anger, then all that process, the three questions I would help ask people to help get through that emotional arc we're all going through, mm-hmm. that, that curve, is where are I, or in other words, where am I, how am I feeling, mm-hmm. and do you want to talk about it? Yeah. And the where am I part, you know, I, we, we, we're a, a beautiful, complex family of seven kids. We married 17 years ago, and she had four, I had three. We have nine grandkids. Anyway, it's a complex world. And one time, my wife and I were sitting with a marriage counselor early on in our marriage, and um, I was looking out the window during the conversation, and the counselor said, where are you, Hal? Mm-hmm. And then she said, where are your feet, Hal? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm like, what? And what are you talking about? Where are my feet? Mm-hmm. She's like, where are your feet, Hal? Mm-hmm. She was trying to bring me fully present in this physical body here and now by a simple question: Where am I? Where are your feet? You know, um, Robin Williams one time was asked the same question. I think it was Robin. We won't go there anyway. Yeah, we'll pull that out. But basically, basically, it's. Where am I? What am I feeling? And do you want to talk about it? And whether it's an actual conversation, but that's a deeply engaging way of connecting with other people. My goodness. Right now, I'm just wishing that you and I would have met years and years ago, um, walking the streets of Shanghai. I would ask people for permission on Saturdays. One of my favorite things to do would just be to go out with my wife and my camera and go out into the streets and just ask people if I could take their photo. And then afterwards, I would I would get them developed because we used to have to take our you know our film and get it developed, and I would take it to get developed, and I would always order duplicates, and then I would go back out to the streets and find those people and give them copies of the photos. Oh, that is so beautiful! It was so amazing. No, so I do a workshop at MIT and Santa Fe Photographic Workshops called Leadership in the Lens to teach leaders how to ask better questions through photography. Okay. And Sam Abel, he's a 30-year National Geographic veteran. Yes. He and I do this workshop, and Sam, decades ago, did a National Geographic assignment in Japan. Mm-hmm. And he went back a couple of years ago to find the woman he took the photo of and give it back to her. And he ended up in this small village discovering the person. Yeah 
and having that absolutely tender, gentle moment of connection. Yes. 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 And so, you know, you, you came back to so many, you know, you start, your starter question was about the dysfunctional conversations we have. Right. And, and in, the, in the book that you mentioned earlier on, Questions Are the Answer, mm-hmm. I interviewed 200 amazing leaders from around the world. Arik Gadish, who's the chairman of Bain Consulting, to Debbie Sterling, the founder of Goldie, Goldie Blocks, a kid's uh, uh, company that makes toys for, mm-hmm. for primarily girls to grow up and become engineers. Anyway, amazing people. And three million words of transcripts, and you mm-hmm. sort through that, and what are the patterns, and how did they make their way through the world with questions when others don't? Mm-hmm. How did they get ideas like Jeff Bezos got in order to disrupt entire industries? Mm-hmm. How did they ask these better questions? What I discovered was they were they were systematic about putting themselves in conditions that would cause them to either ask or be asked questions Mm -hmm. that literally unlocked a new pathway and gave them energy to go down it. And those conditions are so counterintuitive to the human experience because the conditions were, I'm going to put myself in a setting where I am wrong instead of right. Mm -hmm. I am uncomfortable instead of comfortable and I'm reflectively quiet instead of all talk. Yeah, those are conditions that are antithetical to our traditional mental model of what managers and leaders do. No, that's exactly right. And and for listeners today who might be saying, guys, I, I know you're saying to ask better questions, and you say in questions are good, and now you're saying that I have to be uncomfortable. Well, that's not how I've been successful. You know, I'm a leader. I I, I grew up very successfully directing and telling people what to do because that's how I was taught how to lead. And, and, and now I'm doing it very well. What do you say to a listener who says, Hal, I love you, bud, but, you know, nice theory, but I'm over here doing my thing and I'm very successful at it. Because I'm there like you, I think we need to challenge them a little bit and let them know why questions will help them be a better leader. What would you say? My answer would be the following. Um, a few years ago in Hong Kong, uh, yeah, it was Singapore. I was talking at an innovation conference for Wall Street Journal, and a CEO came up to me afterwards, and he said, you know, I finally understand what you're talking about, how questions are important. He said, my whole career, I was hired and promoted because I had great answers. Mm -hmm. I just became the CEO, and guess what? There are no answers up there. Mm -hmm. I have to figure them out. And the only way I can do that is asking the right questions. So when we're operating in a world of uncertainty, Questions are the answer because there are no answers there. Yeah. Questions become a means by which we discover the answer. So that's the first response. My second response is from data from prior research around innovation with Clay Christensen and Jeff Dyer, we've mm-hmm. collected 25,000 data points. What we know from that data is that the higher you go in an organization, the more questions you ask that are catalytic. They challenge fundamental assumptions and give us energy to do something different. Mm-hmm. We actually have hardcore data that people who get promoted are asking more questions of a substantive nature. Now, the substantive nature is a non-trivial comment because all of us know some, someone who asks a thousand questions. Mm-hmm. And I asked audiences all over the world Tell me one word that you would use to describe that person. Mm-hmm. And the word I almost always hear is what, Max? What's your best guess? 
<laughs> why, why, do, why do they need to say so much? Very close. So that, that's summarized in one word with this annoying. Yes. They are just annoying me. Yes. My response is they are absolutely annoying if all they do is ask questions. Yes. Because if they're questioning for questioning's sake, they're trying to be clever. Yes. Look good, get a promotion. That is absolutely not what I'm talking about. Don't be annoying. The people who, and here's what I say, which is to take that annoyance factor off. Mm -hmm. What if you knew in your heart of hearts that every question they asked, they would yeah. be willing to put their own energy and time into getting up, getting out, and getting into the world to get an answer to that question? Are they still annoying? Yeah. And generally it's no. Yeah. And that brings me to the final point, which is when I came to MIT seven years ago, mm -hmm. I was stunned at the degree to which this university looks and feels like the most innovative companies in the world that I've studied with colleagues for almost two decades. Mm -hmm. If you walk inside of Amazon, if you walk inside of Tesla, if you walk inside of Cirque du Soleil, if you walk inside of Pixar, if you walk inside of those innovative companies, what you will see is what you see inside of MIT, which is we call it challenge-driven leadership. Mm -hmm. I don't follow you, Max, because you're Max. Mm -hmm. I follow you because you've discovered or you're in the process of discovering a challenge so big that you can't solve it alone. Mm -hmm. And what I know or can do is essential to what you're trying to figure out. Mm -hmm. And so that's why it's challenge-driven leadership. So if I am a leader who cares deep enough about some challenge to do something about it, mm -hmm. and if I don't have the answer now by definition, I'm going to have to ask a thousand questions to figure out what the answer is. Yeah. But we're doing it to solve something, mm -hmm. to find mm -hmm. and solve problems. If we're using questions for political purposes, for self-promotion, they are absolutely dysfunctional and beyond annoying. Yes. And, and I would even say that, that questions then, like any tool, can be weaponized. And weaponized totally. and, and very dangerous at that point. And, and frankly, then we ask questions, but we're doing it in a way that we're trying to set people up to either fail because we have a different answer and we're just going to attack them afterwards. Or right. it's really not a spirit of inquiry in, at all. It's just to blame and shame someone else. But I've done it through a coaching methodology that someone trained me. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and that's yeah, not what yeah. we're talking about either. We're talking oh. about what is your intention? What is your motives? What is your, where, where's your heart? when you want to go and ask these questions so that the questions that you ask are thoughtful so that people feel safe to be able to contribute and that their, their answer, while it might not be what you thought can add value and that you can appreciate that value. Yeah. And, and in the spirit of that, Max, it's like the data I was sharing with you earlier is if you actually assessed, like we, we literally assessed with 360 and self-assessments, mm -hmm. leaders in different organizations, and when you get inside these companies that are sustainably innovative, yes. a service now or a Salesforce, and they do it over and over, year after year, what they've got there is there's simply a higher mean level of everyone asking questions. Yeah. Which means everyone in Amy Edmondson's terms from fearless organization, mm -hmm. psychological safety logic, everyone feels like they're in a safe enough situation to ask the fearless question because 
We do that in order to find and solve problems. Mm-hmm. Adam Stelzner was an engineer at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory trying to figure out teams to get this rover onto Mars. Mm-hmm. He wrote a book about the process and had a chapter called Truth Seeking. That could be lifted out of some religious book, right? But his point was, when you're trying to solve tough problems, you have to get to the truth of a matter. Mm-hmm. And the only way to do that is relentless, provocative, curious, devoted, focused inquiry. Yeah. You've got to be asking questions to unlock new directions. So what are some of the common themes that you, that you find when you're coaching leaders What are some of the common challenges you see? Or like you just mentioned, I hope that isn't lost on listeners to what you just mentioned as well, that the most innovative, most sustainably innovative companies have more people asking great questions. So what are some of the common themes you might see? Uh, Because one of the quotes in the book that I love, you wrote, by getting better at questioning, you raise your chances of unlocking better answers. And on the face of it, I don't want people to just dismiss that as saying, well, yeah, that makes sense. No, but what does that really mean? It means we need more leaders asking better questions, meaning we need more of our leaders in our companies to be better coaches, meaning I need them to show up in a different way than they have in the past. Yes, yes, and yes. So <laughs> give, me, give me one second here. We've got a lot, to, a lot of territory. So here's the, here's the territory we're going to cover, okay? Okay. Um, Kians Corporation makes sensors for manufacturing environments, boring B2B business. They, for almost a decade, have been one of the most innovative companies in the world by this innovation premium metric. They have inculcated within their entire organization a single question they expect everyone to ask every day. Mm -hmm. Why are we even doing this? Mm -hmm. In many organizations, that's just like, stop wasting my time kind of a question. But in this Keyens Corporation, they're not asking it to be clever. Right. They're asking it to be better, not clever. Big distinction. Yes. And so that's why, and, and I've asked audiences around the world, anybody, have, have you ever dealt with the Keyens Corporation? And, and whenever a hand goes up, I ask, what was the experience like? And they're like, they're talking like they just went to the best three-star restaurant on planet Earth. Yeah. They literally are that kind of satisfied customers. And so that's how you put it into the system. You've got someone like Sarah Blakely at Spanx, who had a father who asked her every week, what did you fail at, Sarah, when mm-hmm. she was growing up? And if she didn't have a good fail, her father's like, you didn't try hard enough. Yeah. And so then she puts within her system oops meetings where we talk about failures, not to become more failure prone, but to to show that we're growing, we're learning, we're getting better. Yes. And so there's some things like that that make all the difference. Or you're someone like Tony Shea at Zappos, Mm -hmm. who's the CEO there. And the question he cares about at the core of that company is, how do I produce even better creative collisions? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How do I create this setting where people come together and they responsibly tackle a challenge 
they collide over diverse viewpoints and they come out of it with a better solution than they ever had before. Yes. Which could be their AI people trying to figure out how do you shorten the search process when people type in um, sandal and get to the right thing. Mm -hmm. And they actually ask better questions. And Tony, this was like four or five years ago now, called me because he'd read about this thing called the question burst, mm -hmm. which is essentially you've got a challenge, set a timer for four minutes, even if it's yourself, ask nothing but questions and write them all down verbatim. Don't answer any of the questions. Don't explain why you're asking the questions. Even if it's yourself, don't do that in your head. No answers, no explanations. You get to the end of that four minutes and 85% of the time, the data will say, you will have reframed your challenge, you'll feel better about the situation, and you'll have at least one new idea to move forward. Mm -hmm. So Tony had heard about this, and he's like, I'd like you to come out mm -hmm. and work with us on this. And I said, well, what day would be good? Tony's response was, what week would you like to come? And I'm like, what? No one's ever asked me that sort of a question. He's, yeah, come on out. Stay at La Malopolis, where I live in a little... Airstream trailer with 29 other people in other trailers and small mini homes. Um, come stay with us for a few days. I'm like, this is weird. But he, even there, where he lives in this little trailer court in downtown Las Vegas, in his little mini Airstream, it's like he's constantly creating creative collisions even where he lives. Yes. And so a handful of those trailers are meant for people like me who are traveling through. There's a common fire pit area and play space where everybody comes together. So even before I'm stepping into Zappos, I'm already bumping into creative collisions. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, then we have these conversations, Tony and I, at that fire pit before we go over to Zappos and you wander into that space and you can feel the creative collisions everywhere. Mm -hmm. And you've got, they've got a full-time artist in that space. Miguel Hernandez, who actually is their full-time artist making these beautiful murals on the floor and walls to inspire people and get them to think differently. It's just phenomenal. <laughs> and so I'm wandering through Zappos where they're trying to create creative collisions Kristen is my guide. I notice this chalkboard that people have written on, and I ask Kristen, um, can I write something on that board? Kristen folded her arms, she looked at me, and she smiled, and she said, you know, you're an adult, Hal. You can do what you'd like to do here. <laughs> uh, and Max, I like, I immediately knew I'd asked the wrong question. I felt, I, I, I blushed because I felt so uncomfortable. But here's this questioning guy asking for permission to write on a wall that obviously anyone can write on. And so I went over and wrote, question everything. Like, I'm just being a smart aleck there. Question everything. Then it wasn't but three minutes later, I noticed this sign in the corner where people could, it, had, it was a Zappos employee sign, and you put your head through and took your own photograph. You could move it around to where you want your picture taken. So then I turned to Kristen again and I said, where do you think would be a good place to take my picture, Kristen? She folded her arms again. Hal, you're an adult. Where would you like to take your picture? And you had to, you'd have to know Kristen. I'm like, oh, crap, I did it again. 
And I, I was wrong. I was uncomfortable. And, you know, and, and then after those experiences, Tony Shea is senior team. We then went into a different space. We identified challenges that they cared about. Mm-hmm. We put them into trios. We literally did this question burst process where he wanted to learn this new method. They applied it to challenges they were caring about. Each person took a couple of minutes to share their challenge. Then for four minutes, nothing but questions, no answers, no, no ex- explanations. And 85% of us made some progress on the challenge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So to me, it's the context of here's this intriguing method that honestly works. And I hate people that say, here's some method that works. But all I know is it does. The data signals that it helps us make progress. Yeah. Within the context of a place that Tony Shea and team have created at Zappos where it's a culture of inquiry. Tony models inquiry himself. He does. He is an inquisitive leader. He creates this safe space and a multiple set of processes to enable people to ask their fearless questions. Mm-hmm. And then he motivates them with the purpose that's bigger than themselves. Yeah. They're out to make people happy. That's what Tony Shea's book's about, the happiness factor. Yeah. And it's happiness to be better human beings and happiness to have a better business. And, and, you know, for me, the, the few times that I've actually been to the Zappos headquarters to walk through and, and meet with their leaders, it, they, they purposely design their physical space for those collisions to occur as well, right? It's not just yeah. happenstance for them. These yep. collisions have to occur. And so they make it so that the collisions do occur yep. in physical space. Well, exactly. And so that's the fun thing to ask yourself or your team, which is, where do you get your best new ideas first? Mm-hmm. And the second question is, where does your team get their best new ideas? Mm-hmm. And the first question, you get all kinds of stuff, running, showering, going to the bathroom, eating dinner, you know, whatever. Everybody kind of knows their answer to where they get, where they individually get it. Yeah. But the team question is almost always a big blank. Yeah. I don't know where my team gets their best questions and their best creative insights. Yeah. But if you're sitting down with Daniel Lamar, the CEO of Cirque du Soleil, and you ask him that question, mm-hmm. he said to me, go down to the cafeteria, Hal. That's where it happens. Yeah. And it's purposely built. And I heard that they actually have a different menu 365 days a year to create variety. It's an investment to create variety yeah. so that people will show up. And then you've got backstage people talking with front stage performers. Mm-hmm. You've got this show talking to that show. It is this beehive of productive conversation where questions are being asked uncomfortably so and being wrestled with face-to-face with food in their face where it's a conversation of substance to move things forward. You, you provoke for me another story. Now, I only know this from, from the book, so I haven't met him in person, and you, you likely have, but Alan Mulally, when he was at Ford, he mm-hmm. talks about how he had to get people to work together differently. And one of the things he did is he refused to eat in the executive cafeteria, right? Like, I'm just going to go eat with everyone and be involved in better conversations. And he spent time at dealerships, and he spent time talking about the delivery service and talking about the experience they're creating for their, for their teams and the expectations he had for senior leaders in order for this to all be true. 
Um, and, and basically listening more, right? Just listening mm-hmm. more. Now, a lot of leaders, how they say, you know what, right now I have no time. I go from conference call to conference call. I go from meeting to strategy. And not only do they have no time to reflect for themselves, but they have no time to go out and reflect with their, with their teams. And I think what you and I are sharing here is that's an imperative that's got to change if they want to change what's happening in their business. Well, I'm going to I'm going to play a bit of devil's advocate. Yeah. In an awkward way, which is frankly, questions really don't matter. Mm-hmm. Under two conditions. If what we're doing is the right thing here and now for our customers, then we don't need to ask questions, and the second one is as long as the world doesn't change. Hmm. And in that setting, like, who cares? Mm -hmm. We're doing the right thing. It's delivering phenomenal, and the world's not changing. Then it doesn't matter, Max. Yeah. (laughs) But if the world is changing, or if what we're doing isn't as good as it needs to be, then we're in deep trouble if all we're doing is putting fires out and not creating the space, the safe enough space, psychologically safe enough space, for people to step up and ask fearless questions about challenges we care about. Because when those fearless questions come, yeah. it almost always implies that somebody sitting at that table or on that Zoom call is going to be wrong about something and they're going to be uncomfortable about it. And the discomfort often comes from the implication of, oh, crud. Mm-hmm. I've got to learn a whole new way of doing something. Mm-hmm. And when we get to that space, it cycles back, Max, to a prior conversation, which is moving from where we are to where we need to be mm-hmm. is a lot more than behavioral performance, meaning mm-hmm. those S-curve things we are comfortable with as leaders. We're very comfortable with inviting people to ask a better question, to jump onto a new learning curve, to start doing something better. Mm-hmm. Many of us are. We're less comfortable with helping people manage the transition of who are they mm-hmm. in this new place we're going to. Mm-hmm. Who am I in this new COVID-19 mixed office world where half of my office mates are now back at the office, but I choose to not be there? And will I get passed up for conversations that are important or even promotions because I'm not we're moving into this new territory, this question of how do I fit in? Mm-hmm. And when I'm asking this question, well, I'm not there because, frankly, I'm 63 years old and I'm a high-risk COVID mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. this is a very complex situation and I'm actually afraid for my life. Mm-hmm. That becomes a deeply emotional issue mm-hmm. where we get to the Kubler-Ross curve again around grief and loss and potential loss. Mm-hmm. And we've got to be asking those questions. If I'm working with you, Max, where are you? Mm-hmm. How are you feeling? Can we talk about it? Mm-hmm. If we're not creating the space for the conversations, not just about performance changes and role adjustment changes, mm-hmm. if we don't get to that deeper level of the emotional arc of, of transition that you're going through, we may force people into that new land of the future we're now moving into, but they are not going to be happy there and they are going to as quickly as they can go back to the old world. And so 
you know, this stuff, if we don't create the space today to where people can ask fearless questions about challenges we care about to move things forward, we will pay for it tomorrow. Mm-hmm. It always comes back with interest. Mm-hmm. Oh boy, I, um, I am so grateful for this conversation today. I am I'm reflective uh, because of just how every conversation that I get to enjoy when I deeply listen in the here and now makes me a better human being. And I hope mm. that what happens today is that people who are listening to this conversation will find a piece that can stick with them and help them to want to do something different as a result. I also am thinking that this one conversation isn't enough. I think if you and I could do this again, if you would be willing to do a part two at some point, maybe in Mm -hmm. a couple months, I would love that. Because it seems like, you know, there was a list of questions today that we just kind of put all to the side. And we just had this beautiful dialogue, I feel, today. But there are so many more questions that I would love to be able to help people explore and understand and to feel like, yes, you're on a good path if you if you feel like you can embrace, like you said, that question of, you know, um, why are we doing this? Reconnecting with purpose over and over again, not to be clever, but to be better. Uh, that just sticks out in my mind today. Uh, it, it sticks mm-hmm. out because we need to ask better questions. And we and like you said, if, if, the, if nothing's changing and mm-hmm. we're already making money doing what we're doing, creating value for our customer, then you don't have to ask questions. But if those challenges are ever changing at all, we need to be asking better questions because frankly, as leaders, we can't solve every problem. We need everyone on the team solving all these problems together. And that's what these that's what these collisions are about. That's what these meetings are for. And if we're not creating that space for reflection, for learning, for continuous improvement to occur on the Zoom meetings or in person, we're missing huge uh, and tremendous opportunities, not only to create better value for our customer, but to be able to reduce costs and sustain what we're doing as, a, as an organization. Absolutely, Max. I'm, I'm with you on all of that. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move us to one more space before we put some, some window wrapping around it all. Please. Um, which is, it's coming back to where we started. Yes. Questions count in our ability to move a problem or challenge forward. That's a given mm-hmm. for me especially as you walk inside these innovative companies. But the most important questions that count are the ones we're asking ourselves over and over and over. I call them keystone and shadow questions. Mm -hmm. My shadow question was the one I acquired as that Mm four-year-old. How can I make you happy? Mm -hmm. As a four-year-old, it was contextually appropriate. And as a 20-year-old and a 30-year-old and a 40-year-old, it was a huge motivation to accomplish things Mm -hmm. and to work hard. But there came a point at which, this was about um, 2014, I'm getting up to give a speech and I bump into my shadow question deeper than I ever have before, which is I'm getting up to give a speech I'm feeling pressure on my chest. Mm-hmm. I think it's nervous anxiety. I think to myself, why am I feeling nervous? I've done this a hundred times. I go down and set up the computer. I'm still feeling this pressure on my chest. I ask to step outside. I go outside before I get on the stage, get a little fresh air, say a prayer, go back inside, do a 90-minute speech. Pressure's still there, stronger than before. Why am I so nervous? 
I'm now feeling nauseous and a break comes and I go up to the hotel room where my wife was. And she says, you don't look very good, Hal. And I'm like, I don't feel very good. And she's like, what's going on? And I'm like, here's the deal. And I told her what I told you. She looked at me like, are you having a heart attack? Hmm. And I'm like, I don't know. Let's find out. So I got my computer out and I typed in heart attack symptoms. And, you know, it was um, tick, 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 tick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I am having a heart attack, Susie. And she's like, oh, I, we need to go to the hospital. But I just exercised. I'm sweating. Can I shower first before we go? And I know like, we're going to the hospital right now. And so we went to the hospital. I woke up the next day with two stents and two major arteries, 85%, wow. 90% blocked. What happened there? Two things. Number one, my father had had heart attacks when I was four and 14, and he died of one massive heart attack later on in life. And so when I became an adult, I was committed to never being like my dad. I didn't want to have a heart attack. I did everything I could to avoid having a heart attack. I ate right. I exercised every day. I did everything, all that stuff. I became confident that I wouldn't have a heart attack so confident that I honestly never learned what the symptoms of a heart attack were. Mm -hmm. What I didn't know, I didn't know almost killed me. Mm -hmm. That's the first lesson of the story. Mm -hmm. The second lesson comes back to Keystone Shadow Questions. I'm a classic male after the heart attack. Two weeks later, I'm still not talking to anybody about it, including my wife. And then I meet with our marriage counselor slash professional coach. We're talking about the heart attack situation and she looks me in the eye and she's like, Hal, if you don't stop being nice to people, you are going to gift yourself another heart attack in five or 10 years. Mm -hmm. That's when I finally realized I am living the wrong question. Mm -hmm. How can I make you happy? Has some good edges to it, but man, it's not the one you want to be living mm -hmm. as the core. And so then I tried to to get it away and then i finally realized it's got to be a better question and i call that a keystone and it took me work and we can go into that some other day but my keystone is basically how can i be an instrument of inquiry and invite you to see the dark and seek the light truth good whatever you want to call it because I'm realizing there is in all of us a hidden wholeness. I will always be living that, how can I make you happy question? I just have to acknowledge it, put it in its place, and choose the better question. Mm -hmm. And when I do that, it leads to very different outcomes in everyday work and life. And that's my invitation. These are not simple things to figure out. It took me too many decades of my life to understand it. But my invitation is start that explore if you haven't, yeah. because we're all living the questions. And the issue is, are they the ones we want to be living? Would you mind sharing your keystone question one more time for those who are still thinking about what you just said? So it's so my, my shadow was, how can I make you happy? Mm -hmm. At the very core, it's how can I measure up and matter? Yeah. My keystone originally that I was working on was how can I magnify, see and magnify your light? Mm -hmm. Then it's morphed into 
how can I be an instrument of inquiry mm -hmm. and invite you to see the dark or difficult things mm -hmm. and seek the light, mm -hmm. the good, the better? And sometimes those invitations mean that you're going to be very wrong, very uncomfortable, mm -hmm. and very reflectively quiet, which would not work with my question of how can I make you happy? Yeah. I wouldn't go there. Yeah. But, but the Keystone question invites me into a growth sort of space for mm -hmm. myself and for others. And every word in that is intentional. I once took voice lessons to learn that my voice is an instrument. Mm -hmm. Like I, I, you know, you can see I, I've got some congas and different drums back there. Mm -hmm. um, it's like an instrument. My voice is an instrument. And then I realized, what if I became an instrument of inquiry mm -hmm. where, my where my questions aren't clever and crushing, but they're actually light producing like something good comes out of those questions. how can i be an instrument of inquiry and invite you or others to see the dark in their life mm -hmm. just like i've got it in mine and seek out the light or a better way yeah. and embrace both because it's it, it's an embracing both of those in that hidden wholeness that's the place in which great things happen Hal, thank you. Thank you, Max. Thank you very much. I um, I I am looking forward to the day when you and I can sit around a campfire. Yes, I would love that. I Let's would just, do it. I would just love that conversation. And if we can, I would love to be able to revisit this. Let's do a part two if we can, because Absolutely. I I think there are so many beautiful conversations to be had here. And um, and one day I would love to also enjoy sharing some some photos with one another. So, so many beautiful things that I think we could do. Let's do. Okay. Absolutely. Thank you for your questions today. I'm encouraging all of our listeners, get your book, read it with a with a heart of inquiry and curiosity. And 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 if they can enable as leaders, if they can just take a bit of humility to say, "Listen, I can get even better answers if I just ask some better questions." not to be clever, but to be better. We will all help not only our companies and our businesses, but our families and our communities as well. I'm with you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> to all I'm those listeners you. out there, thank you for listening to the show today. We've been talking today with Dr. Hal Gregerson, Senior Le Lecturer in Leadership and Innovation at MIT's Sloan School of Management. And I am very grateful for the conversation today. And thank you to all of our listeners out there who continue to engage in these conversations. And I, and I appreciate your feedback. Have a great week. We'll talk to you again soon.